Well, it's a great pleasure to introduce Don Lee. Don is the author of three novels, The Collective, Rack and Ruin, Country of Origin, and a short story collection, Yellow. His awards are too numerous to mention, but because he's a wonderful person, I'll mention them anyway. Um, uh, most recently, Don's been awarded the 2013 Asian Pacific American Award for Literature, an American Book Award, the Edgar Award for Best First Novel, a Mixed Media Watch Image Award for Outstanding Fiction, the Sue Kaufman Prize for Best First Fiction from the American Academy of Arts and Letters, and the Member's Choice Award from the Asian American Writers Workshop. And those aren't all the awards. Um, from 1988 to 2007, Don was the principal editor of the literary journal Plowshares, and I think Don's leadership and editorship of Plowshares is as meaningful an accomplishment as any one of his novels. I know he would have preferred to have been spending more of those 17 years writing, but uh, under Don's leadership, Plowshares became one of the most important and prestigious literary journals in the country. It was a very important journal for introducing new writers and getting new writers started in their careers. And most importantly, uh, as the editor of Plowshares, Don became a great friend and booster to many, many writers. And he's widely known in the writing community for his generosity and for his, his great gift for friendship. Um, today, Don will be reading from his most recent novel, The Collective, a heartbreaking, hilarious, sexy novel about friendship, art, ethnicity, and authenticity. I think that's about all you can possibly write about. Yep. So please join me in welcoming Don Lee. Thanks very much, Adam and uh, Carol. It's a great pleasure to be here. Um, I'm going to be reading from the college section of uh, this novel. Um, tell you a little bit about it. It's about three Asian American artists, two writers, and a painter. So they meet in college where they get into a little bit of trouble, and then they reunite 10 years later in Cambridge, actually and form an organization called the 3AC, the Asian American Writers uh, Artists Collective, and they get into a whole lot of trouble. Um, so this section uh, in college, they're actually freshmen at McAllister College, uh, Adams' alma mater, uh, in 1988. McAllister is in St. Paul, Minnesota. Um, and I'm hoping it's appropriate. It's a little risque. The book is a little risque, and I don't. Maybe I should just warn you in advance. It's all about sex, drugs, and rock and roll. <laughs> uh, uh, Joshua is a Korean American who was adopted as a child by two Jewish Harvard professors. And Eric, the narrator, is also Korean American, but he's from Southern California. And Joshua is someone that that uh, Eric admires a lot, maybe a little bit too much. But Joshua's brilliant and talented and very cocky. He's also strident and demanding and sexist. And as you see, I think, he can be an incredible pain in the ass. I kept hearing a church bell ring. I'd be in my dorm room or the library and hear the bell, and I'd look at my watch, thinking it must be the top of the hour. But the clanging appeared random, occurring any time, most often at night or in the wee hours of the weekend. What the hell is that? I asked Joshua one evening. We were sitting in the study lounge of Old Main, both reading Michael Hurst's dispatches for the Vietnam War class. Oh, you don't know, he said with a smirk. Know what? He dog-eared his page and led me to the window. Look across to Warehouser. It was dark, but I could see a few lights outside Warehouser Hall across the quad, and a couple was gambling on the sidewalk, skipping and giggling and kissing. Ever noticed the bell there? Joshua asked. Next to Warehouser Hall, there was a small gazebo with an old church bell hanging inside of it. 
It's a tradition here, Joshua said. You lose your virginity on campus, you ring the bell. All these people were virgins, I asked. This does not seem like a school of erstwhile prudes. Then again, there were a lot of dorky students at McAllister, teenagers who in high school had likely been unpopular and excluded from the active coital roster. No, no. It's when you lose your on-campus virginity, Joshua said. Your first sexual liaisons here, not necessarily the first time you've ever glazed the donut. Oh, I said. You're not a virgin, are you? What? Have you ever buttered the muffin, dipped the corn dog, ridden the wiki-wiki all the way to Tuna Town? Of course I have. Yeah? When? 11th grade? What was her name, he asked, testing me. Leanne Wyatt. Ah, uh, you see, I was right about you. A hinsaram, addicted to mayonnaise. What's a hinsaram? You're such a banana, he said, a.k.a. Twinkie, yellow on the outside, white on the inside. It's just disgraceful you don't know Korean. We had had this argument already. Like many third-generation Asian Americans, I had resisted learning Korean as a kid, not exactly ashamed of my ethnicity, though there was some of that, but wary of being defined solely by it. Joshua's Korean, on the other hand, was quite passable. He had left Pusan at five, but in high school, when his memory of the language was beginning to dim, he retaught himself Korean with books and tapes. He also enrolled himself in Hebrew classes, much to the befuddlement of his atheist, anti-Zionist parents. He was always complaining he couldn't find kimchi or a decent bagel in St. Paul. <laughs> in many ways, our quick friendship was a surprise to me. In coming to Mac, I thought being Asian might work in my favor, sort of as a reverse exoticism, a radical chicness that would redound well, especially with the girls. By hanging out with other Asian Americans, I worried my distinctiveness would be lessened and I might be stereotyped. And the last thing I needed was someone constantly harping on me that I wasn't Korean or Asian enough. But Joshua, for all his insistent Asianness, was, well, cool. He was putatively brilliant. He wanted to be a writer, and he seemed well versed in all manner of things to which I was not yet completely privy, like sex. So, he said, was it cereal mambo with this chick, Leanne, or was it a one-off? A one-off. She's the only one you've ever stooped? Yeah, I said forlornly. You need to get cracking, old sport. So I turned my attentions to Dee Dee O'Brien, a freshman I knew from Ultimate Frisbee. I ran into her in the student union during 70s disco night. As soon as I entered the lounge, she pulled me onto the floor for that's the way I like it. You look fantastic, I said. She was wearing a tangerine orange mini dress and white go-go boots. You too, she shouted, admiring the powder blue suit I picked up at Goodwill. <laughs> if possible, Dee Dee was a worse dancer than I was, gawky and arrhythmic, yet wholly unselfconscious, which endeared her to me. We stayed on the floor for two more songs, Dancing Queen and Cold as Ice, and then coupled for Slow One, Killing Me Softly. You're kind of cute, she murmured. She was drunk. We all were. You're not so bad yourself, I said, nuzzling her. She was tall and gangly, but had a classical air about her, her face strongly angular, yet alluring. She was blonde, of course. A few days later, I asked her out to a movie at the Grand View, and after the show, we went to Dunn Brothers Coffee for cappuccinos and carrot cake and talked. She was from Massachusetts, Irish Catholic, and intended to major in math and computer science. You don't look like a math geek, I told her. What's a math geek supposed to look like? Well, I said, probably like me. I walked her back to her dorm, and outside the front door, we kissed a little but it was all rather chaste, without presage of ardor. This might be a dead end, I thought. Nonetheless, the next Friday, we joined a gang of kids to go to the Sonic Youth Concert at First Avenue, the club Prince had made famous. 
McAllister was in a quiet residential neighborhood miles from downtown Minneapolis, but the school had decided to make a semi-sanctioned event of it, offering two vans to transport us to the club, and we all eagerly piled into them, Joshua included. This is Dee Dee, I told him. Yeah, he said, barely registering her. Fucking A, how cool is this, huh? We're finally getting off the goddamn reservation. First Av, Sonic Youth. I wasn't all that familiar with Sonic Youth or that entire classification of punk rock. Truth be told, before I came to Mac, my favorite musician, I'm ashamed to say, had been Billy Joel. Sonic Youth was touring for a new album, Daydream Nation, and Joshua ran through the songless citing the allusions to Dennis Johnson, Saul Bellow, Andy Warhol, and William Gibson. It's a lit major's wet dream, he said, laughing. When we got out of the van near the club, Joshua pulled me and I pulled Dee Dee into an alleyway. We've got to get in the proper mood for this, he said, and produced a pipe and a lighter from his jacket pocket. Mac was known as a haven for potheads, so I wasn't surprised that Joshua had gotten a hold of some weed. This is primo Buddha, he said, tie stick. Phoebe, ladies get the honors. It's Didi, I said. <laughs> Didi seemed somewhat hesitant, but gamely fired up the lighter and took a toke, then promptly gagged and hacked. Yeah, it's righteous strong shit, Joshua said, and might have some opium laced into it. Between the three of us, we smoked two bowls and then went in for the show. An all-girl punk band did an opening set that was shrieky and uninteresting, but I was enthralled just being inside a club, something I'd never experienced before. I could tell Dee Dee felt the same way, surveying the goings-on with wonder. This is wild, she said. Sonic Youth took the stage with Teenage Riot, which commenced slowly, quietly, but once the band started lashing into the main part of the song, the crowd came alive, everyone raising their fists and headbanging and pogoing, and it didn't stop for an hour and a half, the energy overwhelming and exhilarating. I'm going in, Joshua said after a few songs, and he waded toward the mosh pit that had formed in front of the stage. He disappeared for the rest of the show. Only occasionally would we glimpse him bouncing in the mob, but then Dee Dee pointed and said, look. People were flailing and slam dancing and stage diving, and in the midst of it all was Joshua, who had been lifted into the air, was being passed overhead from hand to hand while lying stiffly supine, arms akimbo in crucifixion, a smug grin on his face. Then he vanished. Someone had dropped him. A ruckus broke out. Bouncers converged. In the van to campus, Joshua told us what had transpired. Racist skinhead dickwad, he said, elated. His eye was welting. His cheek and neck were scratched. His knuckles were cratered and bleeding. Cracker called me a chink and told me to go back on the boat. I clocked the motherfucker. I put him down. It was pure heaven. The next afternoon, I sat with Joshua in the library trying to finish the rest of The Quiet American. His eye was puffed and bruised black, the lid half closed. That guy really called you a chink, I asked. You think I'd lie about something like that? In my entire life, I'd never been on the receiving end of such a slur. I'm just surprised, that's all I said to Joshua. Everyone's been so friendly here. I thought maybe people might look at me funny once in a while, but it's never happened. Not that I've ever noticed, anyway. Don't buy the whole Minnesota nice thing, he said. This place is as racist as anywhere else. It's as bad as Boston. <laughs> Over there, you've got the Ofes and Southie, the Yokels and Dorchester. You know exactly what to expect from them. But the more sinister, corrosive, subtle shit comes from people like your chickadee. What's her name? Dee Dee. What about her? Were you purposely looking for Wasp City, he said. She's Catholic. You know what I mean. She's so white bread. She's the apotheosis of white bread. She's sourdough, man. <laughs> I like her. Do you or are you just on bush patrol? You haven't cracked the walnut yet, have you? Not yet, I admitted. Listen, Joshua said. She's a lemon sucker. What? A yellow dipper, a patty melt, a chiquita muncher. California slang for white chicks who want a taste of Asian. 
how come I'm from California? I've never heard of any of these terms. I can't account for your ignorance, Joshua said. Listen, I hate to be the one to tell you this, but sourdough is just slumming, man. It's a phase, like every chick in college needing to go girl on girl at some point. Chicks like sourdough like to think they're pluralistic, but when it gets down to it, they'll stick to their own kind. Meaning what? Meaning sourdough will never get serious about you? Jesus, I said. We're just hanging out. Who said anything about getting serious? Just so you understand, have fun, wet your wick, but don't expect it could ever go beyond that. I didn't believe Joshua, not really, but I kept thinking about what he had told me. And against my better judgment, I started scrutinizing everything Dee Dee said and did, as if searching for incriminating evidence. Was it significant, for example, that she bought a silk happy coat and began wearing it around campus? Was there something to her having a late night craving for mushu pork and making us take the bus up Snelling to the House of Dynasty? Should I have been perturbed that once, apropos of nothing, she sang the chorus to the song Turning Japanese? What about the fact that she wanted to learn Tai Chi? or the time she uncupped her hands to give me an origami of a tiny blue bird. Then there was a night she wanted to cook me dinner, an odd whim, because she couldn't cook at all. Her dorm had a lounge on every floor with a stove, sink, and microwave, and there she whipped up an unholy concoction of frozen vegetables, shredded day-old chicken salad sandwiches with the bread, a sprinkling of cashew nuts, and an entire jar of plum sauce, all mashed together and sautéed in a wok and served in rice bowls with chopsticks. It's good, I told her, naturally. And then there was this conversation. Your hair is so straight, she said. Is it this straight all over? Not completely straight. A little wavier, maybe. Let me see. She lifted my arm and peered through the sleeve at my armpit. Then she said, what about down there? Where? You mean my pubes? Uh-huh. The same, I guess. I suppose I'll have to check it out for myself sometime. Things like that last statement made me ignore the strong circumstantial case that was building up against sourdough, the sobriquet becoming more apt by the minute. I told myself I was just being paranoid. So what if she was going a little Asian on me? So what if she had contracted a bit of yellow fever? Maybe all the evidentiary pieces were merely coincidental or just gestures of attraction, misguided as they were. She was simply trying to tell me she liked me. Anyway, I was being unduly influenced by our increasingly avid makeout sessions, by all the smooching, sucking and licking, the groping, stroking and grinding. They were turning me Japanese, making my testicularity bluer than origami. Finally, one night in my dorm room, after hours of spit-swapping on the floor, Didi whispered, do you have a condom? Did I have a condom? Was she joking? Did I have a condom? I had at least eight dozen condoms. <laughs> I had condoms of every shape, color, size, material, texture, thickness, and flavor. I had condoms that were ribbed and studded, that tickled and tingled, that were lubed and edible, that heated up and glowed in the dark. For a month, I had been hoarding condoms, buying variety packs at the drugstore, palming them from the bowl in the health clinic, grabbing multiple free handouts during safe sex week. I think I might have one, I said. Okay, she said, let's do it. Are you sure, I asked, then regretted asking. I'd had a feeling that tonight might be the night, yet everything felt as if it were tottering in suspension. I didn't dare do anything that might make Dee Dee change her mind. Turn off the lights, she said. I did. Take off your clothes and get into bed. I did. Put on the condom. I did. I waited. I lay on my tiny bed on its stilts, sheathed by the condom, and I waited. Dee Dee? She was still standing below me. Wait, what time is it, she asked. It's 11.17. I totally forgot. I have another date, she said, and chortled weirdly. I'm late. Then she ran out the door. What the hell? 
I glanced down at my Sensi dotted Ultra Invigro Extra Stimulation Condom, orange, mint. Dee Dee was not a virgin, but she was as inexperienced as I was and somewhat priggish, the residual Catholic schoolgirl. Or so I had assumed. I'd never imagined she might be dating someone else simultaneously. If anything, I had worried she might be attaching too much significance to our dalliances. But now I had to recalibrate. Had I been completely mistaken about her? Was Dee Dee, in fact, a closet hussy? I snapped off the condom. I was miffed and angry, but eventually I fell asleep, only to be awoken at around one in the morning by a knock on the door. In the hallway was Dee Dee, holding a pint of Ben and Jerry's white Russian ice cream and a bottle of vodka. I'm sorry, she said. I lied. I didn't have another date. I don't know why I said that. I freaked out a little. Okay, a lot. Do you like white Russians? Do you have a couple of glasses and a spoon and maybe another condom? All was forgiven. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Stephanie Rance's fiction has been included in the O. Henry Prize stories, noted in the Best American Short Stories, and has appeared in numerous journals. Uh, Stephanie has been a Breadloaf Scholar, a Stegner Fellow, and a Rhodes Scholar. Her debut collection of stories, The Kissing List, was published last year to great critical acclaim. The New York Times Book Review said that, quote, Rance's characters are as sharp as they are sly, as intellectually brilliant as they are oddball. These stories are often funny, but there's a satisfying dark edge. Rents weaves the book's stories together with humor, grief, and slender prose. And the New Yorker praised the book for being imaginative and skillfully written. Um, Stephanie's writing has been compared favorably to Lori Moore's. And um, as I was reading the kissing list, I kept thinking of a line from a Lori Moore story. And this is the Lori Moore line. She knew at that moment the strange winding line between charity and irony, between shoplifting and love. And the same strange, beautiful winding line runs through the kissing list, a book about women at odds with themselves at odds with their lovers and careers, a book about women traversing that strange winding line between their transgressions and their longings. Stephanie. Well, thank you so much to everyone for having me. It's uh, such an honor to be here. Um, so I'm gonna just read a story from my collection. It's called None of the Above. One. Who will come to my wedding? A, my parents. B, my brother. C, my betrothed. D, none of the above. There is a spider who lives in a high corner, who lives in a high corner of the big bay windows that look out on the garden. The garden is more like a nursery because all the plants are in pots, just in case Carlos, the man who lovingly tends the garden, ever decides to move. He has lived in the apartment building for more than 20 years and looks like he would ride a motorcycle, except that his teeth hang by slender roots from his gums. I leave the spider and her web unmolested because of the fat black flies who whoosh through the bedroom window, the one I leave open for the cat, who is fond of jumping out, eating potted plants in the garden, leaping back inside and regurgitating tangles of bright green grass on the wooden floor. When the flies get caught in the web, the spider is at the ready, climbing her jungle gym of delicate thread more expertly than the children at the elementary school beyond the garden on the other side of the high cyclone fence. The flies sound like faraway race cars gunning their engines to hurl themselves down a straightaway or around a bend when they find themselves glued to the web with a spider poised to kill them. My desk is pushed against the window where the spider lives. This is where I, this is where I sit when I write multiple choice questions for school children. Not the school children across the garden, who, in fits of occasional anger or exuberance, throw one another's winter jackets over the high fence, but school children who live in Ohio and West Virginia and whom I will never meet. Two. 
Read the sentence. If you find a mistake, choose the answer that is the best way to rewrite the sentence, that is the best way to write the underlined section of the sentence. If there is no mistake, choose correct as is. Arnold built a ship out of toothpicks that were three stories tall. A. Arnold built a ship out of, that were three stories tall, toothpicks. B. Arnold, who was three stories tall, built a ship out of toothpicks. C. Arnold built a ship that was three stories tall out of toothpicks. D. Correct as is. I feel sorry for the children who have to answer these questions. I am told if they do not apply themselves to the study guides I write, they will fail important tests and get held back. Imagine flunking fifth grade because you can imagine a three-story tall Arnold, a towering boy with delicate fingers whose hobbies include shipbuilding and farming worms. I picture him in the backyard, not the garden, but the backyard of my childhood, a half acre of land with a dead catalpa in the middle, where we swung from an old tire until the day the branch came down with a crash. I see the building tall boy stabbing electric stakes into the sod, making the ground extra charged so that the worms rise and and thrust out their naked heads. I see Arnold studying the, la the lawn through his super spy binoculars from a great height before carefully lowering himself and tweezing free the worms like the finest loose threads. My brother, whose name also happens to be Arnold, was involved in worm cultivation, along with his best friend, Luke. Bitten by the capitalist bug one summer, they harvested dozens and dozens of worms, storing them in an old wooden barrel in our garage. They had planned to sell them to the convenience store a half mile from our house, but the manager didn't want them, and they quickly moved on to another money-making scheme and forgot all about the worms. August heat sucked the moisture from the dirt, and the worms hardened into squiggles as crunchy as chow mein noodles. Now Luke is a recovering drug addict, and Arnold is dead, a casualty of the war in Iraq. So eliminate B. Arnold will not be coming to my wedding, and I will not go to his. The best I can manage is test questions, the occasional imaginary Arnold doing something extraordinary. I know if Arnold took this test, he would pass with flying colors. Even though grammar was never his specialty, he would offer a quick solution to the chimpanzees slowly chattering for their bananas. Not that chimpanzees are the real problem. Banana slugs are. Three. The chimpanzees chattered slowly as they watched the banana slugs creep towards the cat food. A. The chimpanzees chattered as they watched the banana slugs creep towards the slowly cat food. B. The chimpanzees chattered as they slowly watched the banana slugs creep towards the cat food. C. The chimpanzees chattered as they watched the banana slugs slowly creep towards the cat food. D. Correct as is. In addition to the spider, the cat, the flies, there is a slug. Not my boyfriend, the one I intend to marry despite what I imagine would be my parents' threats to stand when the minister asks, is there anyone who opposes this marriage and speak their minds? Using process of elimination, P-O-E, you would be making a fairly educated guess if you struck my parents from the list of people who are likely to attend my wedding. A slug, the slugs, the slugs emerge from the crack beneath the back door. And aside, it's important to note that you can use the definite article with both the singular and plural forms of the noun. The indefinite article is a different story. This experience has taught me that slugs like to eat cat food, but cats don't like to eat slugs. When there is a slug spooned over the cat food like marshmallow fluff, my cat does nothing. She likes flies, fine, but not slugs, because I suppose there's no challenge in catching and eating them. Then the challenge is mine, to carry the dish of cat food to the garbage without tipping the slug onto my foot. The back stairs are narrow and rickety, and the thought of upsetting the slug food onto the ground and luring more slugs from the dusty corners of the basement is enough to upset me, though I do not generally upset easily. For instance, I would walk a mile sucking a lime if I could tempt Emil to marry me, but neither email nor anagrams nor homophones seem to entice my betrothed to be to appear with a jar of daffodils to build me a three-story picket fence. I have chosen just the spot on the desk next to my brother's photo to, to display the daffodils. I will assure Carlos that I did not steal them from his garden, though I cannot vouch for Emil because I barely even know him. This is why my parents would oppose the marriage, and who can blame them? They are upset about Arnold and my plans to plan a wedding because I 
and my plans to plan a wedding before I've even secured a husband would salt their wounds. They are old-fashioned. They do not believe in green card, mar green card marriages, open marriages, courthouse marriages, starter marriages, secret marriages, or marriages of convenience for insurance purposes. They do support gay marriage as long as the loving couple intends to adopt or buy sperm and a baster and get down to business. I made that last part up. My parents, good liberals, support gay marriages with or without children. When my brother Arnold announced his intentions to join the Marines just shy of his 27th birthday and a year before we declared war on Iraq, they begged him to reconsider. And then when they saw how determined he was, they begged him to go back to school and earn the last three credits he needed to graduate so he would have the option of, enro of enrolling in officer school instead of going straight into the infantry. That's not a sentence a student in Ohio or West Virginia should read, not because I'm ashamed of what my parents wanted for Arnold or what Arnold said he believed in, but because it's a run-on. The only grammar the cat knows is the sound of a key in the front lock, the caw of the backyard blue jay, the mechanical pop of a fresh can of fancy feast being opened. The blue jay sometimes alights on Carlos's shoulder while he waters or weeds the garden, its animal intuition keen to the fact that Carlos is a kind man with no interest in raiding its nest. The same can't be said for the cat, who would present herself with a hero's medal for massacring a baby bird. Arnold knew his nouns and verbs, his adjectives and adverbs. He knew, for instance, that cats do not purr brave, but that brave cats purr. He knew that he could run faster and do more pull-ups and sit-ups than most 21-year-olds. He knew the difference between comparatives and superlatives, knew that being better than most was nearly as good as being the best. I'm not sure whether he had considered the grammar of movement to contact or maneuver under fire. He maneuvered under fire better than 95% of the other Marines. But what about that other 5% and the peculiar nature of the word forever? Four, don't assume that there is always a correct answer. If none of the answers is correct, choose none of the above. The spider lived forever but died once. A, the spider lived once but died forever. B, the spider lived forever but died. C, the spider lived but died once. D none of the above. If I were a student, I would lose my faith in formal education when I got to that one. <laughs> and if I were brave or rebellious or overbursting with life, I would just forget about the test and make an interesting pattern with the rest of the answer bubbles. Art is as good an answer as any. As for the spider, her lifespan is probably shorter than a human's, but I can't be sure. Cats may linger until their early 20s, and if you're lucky enough to own a parrot, you'll have a lifelong companion. For a period of time, the spider in my window and my brother were both alive. Then I went to Boise. My parents and I had to go through Arnold's things, his Legos and Star Wars figures, his mechanical bank that sorted coins by weight and from which I stole quarters whenever I was short on money, his track ribbons and high school dance picture, high school dance pictures. There he is wearing enormous glasses. There he is with a powder blue boutonniere, his arms wrapped around a girl wearing equally huge eyeglasses and a carnation pink corsage that matches her dress. Five, the name of Arnold's high school girlfriend was A, Liz Roberts, B, Liza Robertson, C, Elizabeth Robeson, D, I'm not sure, E, I can't remember, F, I wish I could remember, G, I have decided that it's Lisbeth Robertson. He still had all the choose-your-own-adventure books that had once been mine and a beautiful hardback version of Goodnight Moon that he'd sold to Luke for $5 just before both sets of parents put an end to their commercial activities because someone was always getting gypped. Do you remember when he got cut from the football team, my mother said, holding up a dusty record album with a black cover? For some reason, Arnold had gotten a real stereo with a turntable and a tape player when he was a kid. If he weren't dead, I would probably have started to joke complain about the inequities of being the oldest. No, I said. You don't remember how he came home and he locked himself in his room? No, I said. How can you not remember this, she said. It was a long time ago, I said. You can't suddenly expect me to remember everything. She didn't look like a good liberal anymore, especially when she raised her hand as if she wanted to slap me. They had a flagpole in the front yard now, but they also drove a Prius. Grief had unpredictable results. What, I said. What, what, she said. 
If you think too hard about the grammar of talking, it can fill you with despair. What were you telling me? He listened to this album, she said. It was Pink Floyd's The Wall. He said it was so depressing it made him feel better about his own situation. It put everything in perspective. She blew her nose into a Kleenex that she had been holding for three days straight. It looked like a clump of stringy bread dough. I offered her the tiny packet of tissue I'd stuffed into the back pocket of my jeans and thought of the following, and thought of the following. The monkeys mopped up the banana slug slime with our pocket-sized tissue. Kids would get a kick out of a sentence like that, especially if one of the choices included pocket-sized slime. That's a nice story, I said. It's not a story, she said. And before I could assure her that by story I did not mean made-up things, she added, it's the truth. The cat didn't like Boise. There was so much grass she couldn't decide which blades to eat. She stopped coughing up hairballs, grew sluggish, peckish. Nothing could rouse her, not even baby squirrels. That's when I decided I should get married. We needed a to-do list that didn't involve the Salvation Army and donations to scholarship funds and candlelight vigils and trying to track down girls from junior high dance pictures who probably have enough crap and heartache in their lives already without the news of Arnold. But of course, before I marry, I need an Emil or a Neil, an Anil or a Niles. And it is not just a matter of switching letters and choosing the right form of the indefinite article. Everything would be more auspicious if no article were necessary, but I know better than most that with hard work and discipline you can do anything. At least that's what I tell kids in Ohio and West Virginia. Six, congratulations, you've completed the practice book for the Ohio State Reading Comprehension Test and now you're ready, ready to race to success on the exam. To make sure your car is in tip-top shape, one, get a full night's sleep. Two, eat a good breakfast. Three, dress in comfortable clothing. Four, bring three sharpened number two pencils with good erasers. And five, review process of elimination the night before. Everyone knows, though, that things happen, that the best laid plans are sometimes ruined by surprise. The cat scrabbling around half the night with a mouse she's brought in from the garden, milk mysteriously souring in the carton, skin too tender to be touched by anything, even clothing. When I am back at my desk after my trip to Boise, I see that the spider is still there. Moreover, she has laid another purse of eggs. Because of what happened the first time, a massive explosion of tiny spiders across the window carnage. I use a tissue from the box on my desk, pluck the package of eggs from the web, and flush the whole thing down the toilet. I avoid speculating about the spider's feelings. Even though I caution students against talismans and charms, you make your own luck. Hard work is what it takes. I cross my fingers, hoping that Carlos is not in the garden, hidden behind the boisterous clumps of calla lilies that have just unfurled their smooth white trumpets, that he will not knock on my window and ask me why, I'm in, why, I'm a, why I am crying, not just now, but in the morning when I am drinking my first cup of coffee, and just after lunch when it is too soon to go back to work, and I fill the minutes with little tasks like trimming my toenails, and scanning old photos, and sorting paper clips by size or color, and also at other moments that I cannot predict and even afterwards do not wholly understand. I review process of elimination one more time because perhaps there's still a slight chance that someone besides me will show up for my wedding. Seven, P-O-E, it's a snap. One, read the question. Two, read each answer carefully. Three, eliminate each answer that you are confident is wrong. Four, choose the best answer from the choices that are left. Even if you aren't 100% sure you know the right answer, POE can help you make an informed guess. Is it possible, though, that I have eliminated the wrong choices, that my guesses have not increased my odds, but done the opposite, taken them down to zero? There is the church, and there is the steeple. Open the doors, and there are the people. Arnold, my mother and father holding hands, my aunts and uncles and their children, my grandparents all dead for many years, but surprisingly real-looking ghosts. There, at the front of the tiny chapel, is my neighbor, Carlos, fussing with the flowers. As usual, he is greasy. In the third pew is my best friend, Vida, whom I have seen exactly once since Arnold's death, because I can manage multiple choice questions, but not essays, and everything she asks requires an answer too long and complex for my state of mind. Grief has made me a misplaced modifier, a fragment, A, that is missing its subject. But here is a mill. 
I'd always hoped he would turn out to be my betrothed because of his wit, the shape of his green eyes, his strong hands, and perfectly executed espresso. An old organ starts to play the processional off-key in an atmospheric way, and I glide down the aisle as though I have practiced walking in a long gown that I bought from the second time around to compensate for my natural clumsiness until I remember that I am the one who writes the multiple choice questions, and I know the right answers, and there is only one. I wish I could admit to students that guessing still involves a risk, dumb luck, pretty good odds of being in the wrong place at the right time. Shit, Arnold said the last time I talked to him on webcam. I almost stepped on a camel spider last night if I'd gone to the can just a few minutes earlier. He must have recognized the look on my face, the same one I wore the time we saw a rattlesnake in the foothills above Boise. Don't believe a word of what you read about camel spiders, he told me. First of all, they're not technically spiders, they're salupkids. I thought, maybe Arnold will go back to school and study etymology when he gets out of the Marines. Maybe he will be able to explain how slugs sneak into houses. Maybe he will show me a way to live with them peacefully. And he continued, they don't eat camel stomachs and they can't run 30 miles an hour. Yeah, they're scary as hell, but they're only six inches long. I don't know how they doctor those photos so they wind up looking as big as a man's thigh bone. Despite, this, despite the delay, which made everything Arnold said and did look jerky, I thought, there is my brother. There he is, even though he is halfway around the world fighting a war. And I said, what happens if they bite you? He laughed, hurts like a bitch, but you can't die from them. And I laughed too. That's a relief, I said. That's one less thing to worry about. And then after talking some more, we said goodbye. I meant to ask him whether it's hard to tell the difference between a scorpion and a camel spider, between a car of confused civilians that fails to slow at a roadside checkpoint and a car that is racing to get as close as possible before exploding. I wanted him to tell me about some secret military strategy more effective than process of elimination, something surer than an educated guess that I could pass on to students in Ohio and West Virginia so that they would never not ace a test, so that every one of them would live happily ever after, but I didn't get the chance. Thanks. Thank you. Those were both great, great readings. Um, so I will have a brief conversation with uh, Stephanie and Don, and then we'll open it up to um, questions. Um, Do you want us to sit here or stand? Or? No, you can sit. Okay. Yeah. Um, um, so I, I thought we'd begin by talking about sex <laughs> in your books. Um, uh, Stephanie, there is a moderate amount in your book. Uh, Don, there is more than a moderate amount <laughs> in your book. And I sort of have a two-part question. The first is, uh, each of you can respond to both parts of the question. Um, the first is, um, almost every writer I know is extremely self-conscious when it comes to writing about sex, not because one is embarrassed, but because if you don't do it well, it's really embarrassing. So um, maybe each of you could speak to some of the technical artistic challenges of <laughs> dealing with that subject matter. And I, I think in both your books, um, the sexual lives of the characters are, is central to some of the important thematic concerns. In Stephanie's book, I see it as central to the relationship between men and women, to the power imbalances, to the tug of war that is going on between them. And in Don, your book, um, it's, it's probably the primary way the characters attempt to subvert and demolish stereotypes about being Asian, Asian American. So. Well, no, that's actually exactly it. Uh, you know, there, when I, published my first book, it was a short story collection called Yellow, and I gave a copy to my father. <laughs> and uh, the only comment he made about it was, there's a lot of sex in here. <laughs> that was it, essentially. But um, the main reason really was that uh, I did want to subvert those stereotypes about Asians. I mean, 
especially in the media, on TV shows and movies um, at that time in particular, you never saw Asian Americans as uh, being sexy people. Um, that's changed now, but at that time when I was starting out, that was largely part of it. And so, you know, I wanted to make sure that I, my characters uh, had sex and, uh, and enjoyed sex and um, performed well in sex <laughs> and uh, to try to avoid those stereotypes. Um, I, I think I didn't have to worry too much about um, my ability to write a good sex scene because none of my characters are having good sex. <laughs> They're all having bad sex, so that made that made the challenge a little bit easier. But um, I suppose um, one of the things that um, you know interested me was because my book is about women who are in the kind of the decade after graduating from college. Um, so I was um, interested in the kind of like the ways that women might sort of. Uh, have a little bit of confusion about like what feminism means to them and what the sexual revolution is going to mean in their lives um, and to um, explore in one story a woman has a kind of like ongoing relationship with an exhibitionist masturbator and they, they never actually have sex she says that they're having sex without sex like sex without like you know just without penetration but it, you know she's someone who is very confused who thinks that because she's like liberated or she thinks that to be liberated means to be brave but she's very confused about what it means to be brave and and she sort of she thinks that as long as the situation isn't too dangerous she can sort of stay in it and so but she doesn't take into account like the sort of toll on her um, you know on her own sense of well-being or self-respect um, so so mostly I was interested in like how people can confuse, can use sex as a means of connection, but not a very deep means of connection. Um, Stephanie, i probably not the first person to bring this up, but um, I, when I was reading your book, I, I was thinking of the HBO series Girls. Oh, yeah. And, right. I'm, and obviously your book was written before that mm -hmm. series, and maybe we're thinking that could have been me. <laughs> But um, the reason why I bring that up is because um, I think it's dealing with similar serious subject matter in the way that women who have just graduated from college or in, are in the decade of their life right after college are trying to sort of negotiate the difficulties of living in New York, of having aspirations of being poor, mm -hmm. um, dealing with... Um, uh, this sort of post-feminist world, and um, you sort of answered the question with your last response, but um, I'm just kind of interested if you've seen the series and whether yeah, it, it, re it resonated. Yeah, yeah, in, yeah no, definitely. I love. I haven't seen. I've I've only seen like three or four episodes from this first season, but I'm you know I'm I saw Tiny Furniture, and I'm, I'm yeah. a great. I have lots of admiration um, for. I'm forgetting her name, but um, yeah, Lena I mean, Dunham. yeah, Lena Dunham. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I just I. It struck me that um, that there's a kind of like you graduate from college. Um, I'm, certainly, this is sort of the way I felt, and I just thought I was all grown up, um, and because uh, it's a kind of big kind of turning point in your life, and then um, I felt like. Oh, what I experienced to some extent and saw my friends experiencing to some extent was the fact that the, you, you don't have all the answers at that point. And so I wanted to sort of explore all of the hard things um, that, you know, that the next sort of eight to ten years um, holds for women. Um, and I was also really interested in um, uh, exploring the role of work in people's lives because sometimes that feels like underrepresented in fiction and yet like what we do for better or for worse is such a huge part of our identities and I think it's also a huge part of you know I'm writing about privileged young women but you know a huge part of like the identities of college educated women like who are they going to be um, and that sort of like disappointment about all that you thought you could be you know, you still have a great sense of possibility, I think, through college, and then you graduate, and that sense of possibility really starts to diminish. Um. Okay. Um, Don, one of the um, qualities about your novel that I, I really admired the most, and I thought that you brought off with, with great skill, is the fact that the characters in the novel, the three central characters, all have 
very strong, pronounced ideologies about what it means to be an Asian American artist. Um, yet, those ideologies also are what make them flawed characters as well. Mm. And so when I was reading the book, I felt that they were giving these very powerful and impassioned speeches and declaring these manifestos that made a lot of sense, but yet it was also part of their, um, their, their downfall as, as characters. So I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about what it was like to write about characters that had these very strong views, these very strong, mm -hmm. well-articulated ideologies about being Asian-American artists, but at the same time keeping your distance from it no. as an Asian-American writer yourself. Well, I mean, you know, from a technical viewpoint, uh, because I had this narrator, Eric, he's really caught in the middle mm -hmm. of these opposing views. but. The essential argument is, you know, if you're an Asian American artist or in particular a writer, do you always have to write about being Asian American? Do you have to always write about race? Do you have to have your characters be Asian American? And if you don't, is that some kind of race betrayal? Or if you do, are you perpetuating stereotypes? And so, you know, these are the questions that I've been asking myself, and especially uh, younger Asian-American writers that I've talked to, you know, they're kind of wondering what their obligations are. Um, and, you know, I don't think that it's something that someone who's non-Asian-American mm -hmm. worries about, or at least uh, is a, not mm -hmm. a writer of color right. would ever worry about. Mm -hmm. uh, but it is for us, and so, you know, I. I where do I um, stand in this issue? You know, I think people could, should be able to write whatever they want to write about. And, uh, and in this interview, um, you know, I had pointed out Kazuo Ishiguro, uh, who wrote The Remains of the Day, which is one of my favorite novels. And he's, um, you know, he was born in Japan, and he moved. Uh, he was moved to England when he was about six or eight years old. And even though his first two novels um, took place in Japan, ever since then, you know, the third one was *The Remains of the Day* about an English butler in World War II, uh, and then the, um, he, you know, most recently wrote uh, *Never Let Me Go* about cloning, uh, which is just an incredible book, by the way. But Anyways, he's never touched the subject of being from Japan again. Hmm. And, uh, and so, you know, very easily people could have said, well, you should be writing what it means to be British Anglo or British Japanese. And, uh, but he's never gotten that. And uh, I think it's strange that in the United States, though, you do get that a lot. Uh, it's what I got when I was in grad school and workshops. My people said, you know, you should be writing about what it means to be Asian American, to, you know, the mm -hmm. Asian American experience. And I always thought that that was really presumptuous of them to try to foist upon me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, as you're saying that, I'm thinking that, you know, to me, one of the most powerful and affecting uh, scenes in the novel is um, when uh, the, the characters are in college and... Um, um, a white student in the class submits a story that's set in China. It's kind of a Pearl Buck-inspired right. story, and the class is going around and praising the story, and then they get to Joshua, and he absolutely eviscerates the manuscript, basically claiming that she has no right to yeah. deal with this experience, and then she gets so angry she does something that causes her to be expelled from, from college, and it was just... Uh, I think so affecting because it was so morally ambiguous. All right. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I actually disagree with uh, Josh yeah, at, yeah, at that yeah. point. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, there are people, um, you know, who would argue that very strongly, in particular when it comes yeah. to uh, writing from the African-American point right. of view. Yeah. Uh, you know, when William Styron won yeah. the Pulitzer Prize for... Mm -hmm. uh, Confessions of Nat Turner, right. uh, you know, there was a huge controversy about that. Yeah. Um, 
in, in 2001, I was teaching um, American literature at a university in China. And uh, one of the units was, I decided to share literature of the Vietnam War because I thought that was something that the Chinese students and I might have in common. And one of the students asked, have any American writers ever written stories from the point of view of the Vietnamese who suffered? And it was very difficult trying to explain to them that there's this pressure that you're that you're not really supposed to write from the point of view or adopt the experience of a person of a different race right. in, in American letters that um, uh, most writers wouldn't think of doing that just because there's almost a taboo against um, uh, against yeah. that. Although so, Robert Olin Butler yes. <laughs> wrote uh, right. a, a book about from the Vietnamese point of view. Uh, and, I think he won the Pulitzer for that yeah. too, right? And I think he felt sort of authorized to do that because he was fluent in Vietnamese. Right. So that um, probably made him feel he had a sort of certain degree of access to the lives of those characters. Mm -hmm. So, well, why don't we open it up to questions from the audience? And if I could just add a little twist to that question, um, I think Don's first collection of stories, Yellow, um, like Stephanie's collection, are semi-linked stories, so that it in itself is an interesting sort of subgenre of the short story collection. And so maybe you can both. I'll let you no, start. Go ahead. I mean, I've um, well, you know, uh, the most prosaic answer to that is really it's pretty boring but it's only that in MFA programs uh, in workshops you do short stories uh, so that's why so many people when they're starting out write short stories I mean I think it's actually a great proving ground because you need to be able to compress things and imply more than say things explicitly and uh, and depending on the type of writer you are uh, you know it can actually be a great training ground for a novel uh, but again, this is another boring answer, is that uh, I sold the collection Yellow, but the publisher, um, in exchange for publishing a collection of short stories that they knew would not sell very well, um, uh, contractually ob obligated me to write a novel. And so, and I'd never attempted a novel. Uh, and uh, I actually, I, in the process of, you know, you send out your manuscripts and the editors end up, um, in my case, they ended up uh, calling me. Um, but now they actually force you to go down to New York and meet them because they want to see whether you're freakish or uh, can hold your own in an interview or perhaps appear on fresh air or something like that <laughs> and can be semi-articulate and, uh, and not insane. Uh, but during that period, you know, the, 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 I had a couple editors call me and they say, well, you know, these, these stories are nice. Um, are you working on a novel? And I said, no. And they said, do you have an idea for a novel? Mm -hmm. and, and I kind of made up something on the <laughs> spot. And then I had to write a novel. And um, I found I really enjoy writing novels. Uh, because you have to immerse yourself in this project for two, three, four, five years. And, you know, once you get into it, it's all you think about. Um, you know, I have to have 
I have notebooks all over my house because I'm always getting some sort of idea, usually when I'm doing something like washing the dishes or I'm in the shower. And, uh, and it's wonderful in that everything seems so disconnected and so random. And you're wondering, how am I ever going to pull this story together? But eventually it does. You know, themes start to emerge, motifs. Uh, start to rise, and uh, and it's a great feeling to actually you know invent this world and live in it for a long time, and then hopefully be able to finish it. Mm. Stephanie, did you plan your book as a collection of linked stories, or did I it did kind not? Of... No. So my yeah, my my book was just a collection of short stories, and uh, then the editor, I think. Uh, had seen like the success of uh, Welcome to the Goon Squad and uh, The Girl's Guide to Hunting and Fishing. And she said, why don't you connect these stories? Um, and uh, so I did. Um, and I, you know, I think it would have been a really different book if I had like set out to write a collection of Link stories rather than after the fact trying to find links for the stories. Um, so I think the hardest part was just to get my own head around the possibility that, you know, two separate people could become one person. Um, um, and I had friends who read them and sort of suggested um, moments or stories where the voice seemed to be the same. And so that, that gave me a kind of purchase on the process. But it, you know, the interesting thing about going back through the book again was that once I had like, once I knew more about a particular character's backstory, because I was having to follow them through more stories, I actually had um, a lot more sympathy for particular characters. And I found myself revising stories from the vantage point of just knowing a lot more about what they had um, gone through and dealt with. And so it actually, it, it really helped me in, in certain cases. Um, but I think it's I think it's true what Donna's saying. You know, a lot of people. I did an MFA, and everyone was writing short stories in the MFA. Though I do think, like, I think back to my college years, and think back to like encountering an Amy Hempel story, like in the cemetery where Al Jolson is buried, um, or Grace Paley stories, or Raymond Carver stories, and I think um, that I was just wowed by those writers and the stories that I encountered, and you know that I wanted to kind of be those people in a way that perhaps encountering, I don't, I don't know why I didn't, you know, like encountering, I read all of Toni Morrison in a week, you know, in college, and I don't know why, I mean, probably because it just seemed like it was, she was so dazzling that I couldn't possibly attempt to um, do what she was doing. Maybe the, the short story felt at least initially more manageable. Other questions? Carol? <laughs> but it seemed to be an important thing to, uh, important um, technique or um, to both of you. So I thought maybe you could talk a little bit about how it helps you tell the story or how you think about that. Hmm. Honestly, a rhetorical term. It's paratexas, I think. Uh, is that right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, you know, it, it has to do with rhythm and syntax and trying to uh, really heighten that moment and the way that you can do it is keep on piling on the words uh, in all their variations and so you know I think that that's probably something to do with having low city but it's also kind of in line with um, you know the critic uh, James Wood uh, who uh, teaches at Harvard um, and he actually wrote this really great little book called How Fiction Works which I recommend to not only writers but readers as well uh, but his whole stick was that he really did not like David Foster Wallace <laughs> uh, and uh, even you know Jonathan Latham uh, Jonathan Franzen um, because he categorized them all under this term of hysterical realism. 
and he was talking a lot about their writing style, uh, which had a lot of lists. And uh, but you know, I think that maybe there's something generationally uh, that um, led us uh, to this, because you know, you're right in that it is a technique that's used a lot these mm -hmm. days. Um, you know, I think that it's probably the movement away from Amy Hempel and Grace Paley and Raven Carver. Um, that was the minimalist movement uh, where you really stripped down the language and uh, had, you know, syntactically it was bare bones. You were talking straight declarative sentences or perhaps a compound sentence with a conjunction. But, uh, you know, the uh, the, the pendulum swung the other way, where, where you were really going for much more uh, complex sentences, you were going for positives, you were going for parataxis, you were really going for the sort of overabundance in language. And, uh, you know, that's probably where we lie now. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I think on one hand, as you said, that lists um, are uh, a kind of mode of, for expressing like excessiveness. Um, excessive emotion. Um, they are almost like they can have um, kind of a manic energy to them. Um, but I think, I think, in my work, sometimes I'm interested in the way that lists that the lists are attempting to restrain emotion, um, and so it becomes, uh, a, you know, so that the narrators are quite aware of like feeling too much, and then the attempt to kind of lasso those feelings into a list. So I have like, for instance, a story. Um, of, a, of, of a failed relationship told in the form of a memo. It's like the most inappropriate form um, for talking about why a relationship doesn't work. But it's, you know, it's that kind of the tension between like how angry the narrator of that story is about the end of this relationship and her attempt to kind of like, to sort of contain that anger in the form of a memo. Um, so I, I think that they can do, you know, do two, two different kind of contradictory things. I mean, both of them are probably at their heart about, um, have at their heart this kind of excessive emotion. It's whether, it's, do you just like let it out there or do you, you know, it, the list can just let it spill forth or it can be an attempt to restrain it. Well, thank you both very much. Thank you. Thank you.